And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 115. I'm Brentley. I'm Dan. And before we get into it today, I just want to remind everyone to please don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, do all the things. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, please, please, please go over to Rumble and uh, follow the Dangerous Rhetoric account on Rumble, uh, like some of the videos. That's always a big help. And if you really want to contribute and you have the means, there are links in the description for that green paper that we, we all desperately need so much. Give us your money. <laughs> and with all that said, I want to thank Daniela De Paulis for joining us today. Daniela is a interdisciplinary artist. Um, she's has in charge of this amazing project called Assigned from Space that we'll get into. Um, but first, I want to just thank you again, Daniela, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Welcome to the Thanks show. for having me. It's great to be here. Totally, totally. Um, maybe just give us a little bit of background. How did you um, get into, like, when did you know you were going to go into art? I was doing a little, you know, background research. I saw your website. You know, you came from you know, doing dance and then multimedia. You got into radio. How, how did this all start? <laughs> yeah, it's a long journey. Um, so I've been uh, always in, in interested in art. So um, when uh, I when I was eighteen, I was mostly focusing on dance and contemporary dance, and um, I still treasure what I learned as a dancer so much. It's been really uh, fundamental for my work. Uh, then I moved into uh, interdisciplinary work combining performance with uh, video installations and other technologies. And uh, in 2009, so 14 years ago, I started working with radio technologies and I started working with scientists and that really changed the way I work and um, yeah, completely changed me as an artist. But the reason why I still treasure my background as a dancer is because uh, I wouldn't have been able to have this mindset that allowed me to make a signing space uh, without having that background. So uh, I was very influenced, very interested in uh, contact improvisation and other forms of uh, perf live performance art. And uh, if you're familiar with contact improvisation and other similar uh, dance forms, uh, essentially it's a, an open stage where uh, people start dancing and um, more people join and uh, it is very, um, it is improvised, but there is a flow that belongs to the whole space that really is shared by all participants. So this feeling of a shared space and this feeling of a common experience that is joining all participants is really what informed, I think, my follow-up work. And especially now with the signing space, I think this is some sort of choreography that I'm creating with people joining in from all around the world, including also my collaborators. It's uh, somehow choreographed, but also allows for a lot of free participation. And uh, uh, we move together with the flow. We had no idea how the public would respond when we launched this project. We thought, okay, it could be that maybe only a bunch of really technical people reply. Maybe we just get like 100 people who are really into tech and might uh, get excited about this or um, we just did not know what to expect. And uh, instead we saw this uh, overflowing interest from all around the world. 
And we are submerged by responses, emails, drawings, uh, texts. Uh, the Discord chat has been uh, constantly active uh, day and night, 24 seven, um, with about 250 people um, working together um, at any time of the day and night. So it's been incredibly uh, well received and we just did not expect that. But if I didn't have this mindset of adjusting continuously to the situation and uh, uh, somehow facilitating moving with the people who are working with me at the moment. So I consider even people who work remotely, participants who send uh, a text or a drawing, uh, I consider it as a dancer in this kind of global stage and um, and totally uh, borrow that from the um, live performance art uh, background. Awesome. You know, that's that. It's really kind of interesting when people sort of just sort of naturally come together and fit like different pieces and then the choreography of the interaction just sort of like is, is a manifestation of everyone coming together having a sort of like mind or shared values or shared goals and uh it's fascinating to see especially you know in humans we're so complicated it's like reminds me of uh like starlings in flight when you see those birds doing the big forms in, in the sky it's very similar but different you know because we're humans I also want to say that I think dancing is a really interesting analogy for the universe itself and space itself. When you observe the whole process of how everything interconnects, like it's like a giant cosmic dance in a sense. So that was kind of where my mind was going when you were talking. I'm like, ah, it sort of makes sense that that a dancer with this sort of approach to dance would then take that to something that has to do with space. Yeah, absolutely. Because also, um, when especially with this project, we have to really think about the movement of the Earth and the movement of Mars and the movement of the satellite around Mars to make it happen. So uh, there was a specific window of time during which we could do this event. We couldn't have done it, um, for example, in a few months because Mars is moving away from Earth. So it had to be done within a certain uh, time of the year, otherwise we would have to wait another two years to present this project. So it is indeed all about movement, even cosmic movement, and uh, we are all connected uh, um, with, uh, it has to be all kind of orchestrated. It's, it's really about this uh, synergy of uh, humans and uh, also the celestial spheres, if you like, and even machines that we created that are moving uh, around on these spheres and, and with us in, in time and space. Uh, well, you started to get into it. Maybe we can just oh, let's lay it out um, for you know people that are joining us that, that that haven't heard of the project that aren't sure what's going on. Um, can you just give like a little introduction and summary of of a sign from space and you know um, the you know how it, what what's started, what's happened so far, and you know what the, the basically the goal of the project is. Sure. Well, uh, assigning space is um, a, a kind of, I call it a global uh, theater event. It could be also perceived as a film without making a film. When you mentioned earlier contacts, uh, this uh, film contact that has entered this um, uh, collective unconscious by now, we all watched contacts. Um, it's, it's part of our history, of our cultural history. And uh, somehow I um, also as, a, as an artist, I created this uh, 
uh, experiences, these collective experiences that uh, are filmic because they're fictional, uh, but uh, yeah, instead of going to the cinema to watch a film, you experience it, it's part of society, it's embedded in society. So it is an experience that you remember probably the same way you will remember a film in 20 years, I don't know. So I would be very interested in knowing how in a few years people might remember this event, reading it maybe on the paper, etc. But to um, summarize the, the project, um, it's uh, an event during which we simulated first contact. So I uh, basically uh, brought together a large network of people who mostly are people I've met in conferences or other events uh, from around the world, scientists, artists. And uh, so I brought together scientists from the European Space Agency, uh, with uh, scientists from radio observatories in the US and Italy and uh, um, with the European Space Agency uh, we agreed to have one of their spacecraft called the Trace Gas Orbiter transmitting a simulated extraterrestrial message towards Earth and the message was received by three large radio telescopes on Earth. Uh, the uh, Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, the Allen Telescope Array in uh, California and uh, the Medicina uh, Observatory in Italy. Also, other uh, telescopes joined in. They, when they found out about this event, they they pointed towards Mars, and they they also managed to receive this signal. So, it was really an event that brought together many people from around the world. And um, so, the the for me, the um, I think the artistic question was mostly. Um, would we ever be able to make sense of an extraterrestrial message? Would we ever understand what it means or how would we make sense of it, uh, especially in 2023 when we are uh, a humankind that is able to communicate uh, across continents through social media and a lot of other options. So uh, at this point, we uh, reached a, a, a level in which we create meaning not only locally as it used to be, um, but we we create meaning as as a global uh, as a global species. So we we are able to do it. We have the means to do it. So can we do it? Can we do it as uh, if we received an extraterrestrial signal? And how would we give any meaning to it? So uh, I think that was the artistic challenge, and uh, maybe even quite philosophical, if you like. Um, uh, that I I was trying to achieve with this project. And how how did you how, like who came up with the alien signal? Like was it a, a <laughs> mathematicians and like how did that come about? Uh, that took two years of uh, work. So when I started this project, uh, it was not difficult to bring people together. It was actually relatively easy when I started. Um, um, suggesting this, uh, proposing this project to various uh, scientific institutions, they all pretty much immediately agreed to take part on it. So it wasn't difficult to bring these incredibly established uh, scientists and institutions together, but I think the most challenging part of the project was the message composition. And I'm not kidding. We 
took two years to create this message. I started uh, bringing together specialists from anthropology, uh, poetry, um, uh, philosophy, and and more, and uh, astronomers, etc. And then we we used to meet on a regular basis uh, for about a year and a half. After a year, and a year and a half, I still was not satisfied with what we actually achieved. So eventually I uh, got in touch with a computer scientist uh, called uh, Giacomo Micheli, whom I discovered uh, thanks to one of his artwork. He's also an artist. And uh, I found out about this project he created a few months ago, ago called uh, Infinite Conversation. I was really impressed by this work and I thought, mm, I think I should really speak to this person and uh, to finally crack the, the message and to really um, reach um, a conclusion. So uh, that was the uh, turning point when, when we started meeting uh, with Giacomo. Um, after a couple of months, I knew we had a message I wanted to create. Uh, we managed really to just uh, uh, his uh, technical skills were responding really well to my artistic suggestions. And at that point, those uh, the two kind of became really, uh, we started working really in, uh, in synchronicity. So I wouldn't be able to say, okay, uh, it's fully my message. It's really a co-creation at that point. And um, and later uh, we had a third step that was developed by an astronomer called uh, Roy Smith, and uh, he's also contributed heavily on the final um, on the composition of the message. So so for me, uh, these three people who are actually the only three people on this planet at the moment who know about the message, uh, we were really co-creators. So I um, I feel like we are the three, three simulated extraterrestrials. Yeah, glad you're showing the website has uh, been uh, also quite a work in progress. Um, I don't know if you read the news, but uh, on uh, Discord today, they actually managed to um, uh, extract the message from the radio signal. So. The, the first week, sorry, I don't hear you anymore. Um, Brentley, I, my bad. it's me. Ah, okay, no, I was, I hope I wasn't talking over you, but. No, no, sorry, you're good. I, I, I occasionally, we're in New York City and it's very, very loud here. Occasionally we get buses, so we trucks, like, when you're sirens. Talking, when you're talking, we have to keep muting. So because... it doesn't come over. <laughs> Makes sense, yeah, <laughs> that's fine. No, yeah, the website looks great, by the way. Yes, you can pull uh, up you. the team too, you know, some of the people she was talking about, like Giacomo, and they're all listed there. And then there's just yes. a lot of folks. Yeah, go to about, go to team. And then there's the full team, the advisory and message team. There's three three different teams, outreach, education team. Yes. There's a lot Steve. of people involved in this. Well, and it's not even a full list because the scientists at ESA, they are not included. They work as an institution, so they are not included as individuals, but it was a team of about six people, six scientists, plus a couple of people in the outreach team. So uh, if we add these, these eight people to the team, it's even bigger. And the scientific team at the Green Bank Observatory also is not uh, mentioned. 
Um, and so there are a lot more scientists uh, working um, with, who are represented as institutions, but not as individuals. And how, how did you guys get funding for something like this? Is it like you, you know, listed donations? Did you write grants? Like, where does it come from? Well, I eventually over the years, uh, because my projects are all a bit crazy, and um, so I learned how to become a producer as well of my own projects. And um, so actually for this project, um, it wasn't that challenging to write grant proposals for the uh, Dutch uh, art funding. So here in the Netherlands, we have a really uh, artist-focused um, funding scheme. And uh, so far, they've always been very supportive with my crazy projects. So actually, a big shout out to the Mondrian Funds and Stimularis Funds, who are the most, uh, the biggest uh, funders of the project. And in addition to that, uh, there is a, an incalculable amount of time and uh, in-kind donations, that, I mean, in-kind uh, contribution that has been made by the European Space Agency, the SETI Institute, the Green Bank Observatory, the Medicina Radio Observatory, Italian Institute of Radio Astronomy. So if I had to quantify the time that the scientists uh, invested in this project, that the education team invested in this project, I think, I don't know, the numbers would be really, I'm, I, I, I don't know how I would be able to fund these, um, if not with a really a huge, uh, but I fortunately everyone, as I said, joined in dedicated time uh, to this completely as an in, in, in kind base, uh, simply because we all had this uh, really um, uh, incredible interest in this idea. So I think that the, the interest uh, is what mostly brought these people together and, um, convincing these institutions to dedicate uh, staff and time to the project because, well, we all wanted to make it happen. That's amazing. It's so nice to hear people willing to uh, dedicate their time in order to advance a project that has kind of like a global or even historical sort of, you know, end game here, because who knows, we, we in our lifetime, we may get a signal from space that is of alien origin. Yeah. And you guys are sort of like already trailblazing down the path so that we have a, at least a blueprint to follow in the event that that happens. Yeah, I think the question too, of whether or not we'll even be able to understand a communication from some other intelligence is the most is the most interesting question and uh, i don't know if you've ever seen the film arrival it made me think of arrival yes. and that's that's the whole theme of that and obviously it's it's not a signal in that movie like the the ships actually come and they you know land on the planet and then they they're but they're trying to interpret the language of these beings so they send a whole team in to try to decipher what it is they're actually saying or trying to communicate with us and it just it makes sense too that we wouldn't just automatically understand each other's language so. absolutely yeah well uh, of course uh, arrival is about physical contact also yeah. with these beings so 
that would be uh, very difficult to stage in the as a theatrical event. Yes, yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I'm very pleased that I tried to do this uh, project uh, because um, there were some academics, uh, anthropologists who were really discouraging me from hosting this event uh, because there is no data to base uh, some research from. So um, the main reference was War of the Worlds by Orson Welles, who we, uh, we all know very well. And the, I think 19, is it 1938 radio program? Uh, there yep. was that very, yep. very famous radio program where yeah, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly people panicked. And of course, uh, by now we know that there was a huge exaggeration over it. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes, I mean, this uh, type of uh, historical event, they still affect um, uh, research even nowadays. So some anthropologists were very afraid of the possible reaction to this project and they were really trying to discourage me from uh, actually hosting this event. Um, but this was anyway a very useful conversation we had at the beginning of the project and that is when we decided very clearly that we would announce it as a test, as a rehearsal, rather than something that's always happening and then we have to say, okay, this was just a fictional event for two reasons, because of course we didn't want to take a huge risk or you never know, some people might really panic. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, now we are so surrounded by fake media, fake, fake news, and uh, it's very hard to distinguish uh, what is true from what is uh, fictional. And so um, uh, we wanted to be clear about that, that uh, we are not actually taking advantage of anybody's uh, good faith. And we just uh, said, OK, we will be very clear in the media. This is a test. And uh, I've been very impressed by how accurately actually all the various media channels so far have been pretty much echoing this message so i haven't seen one single article misleading people saying we actually received a signal from space all the articles i read they were very actually accurate on reporting on this it is interesting to think about though like how would people have reacted if you did present it as if like, hey, we just received a message from Alien. <laughs> so like, that's part of your art too, to like yeah. see how it respond. But uh, it reminds me of uh, another question too, which is the question of disclosure when it comes to the UFO phenomenon and visitation and what the government knows about that and why they might be keeping certain things from the public because they're afraid of how the public will respond. I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Dolan. No. Mm -hmm. a historian on the UFO phenomenon, specifically on the government's interest in it. And he wrote a book called After Disclosure, and it's basically all about that. Like, how will the public respond, say, if the government came forward and, and just openly admitted and said, hey, this phenomenon is real and intelligence is directing it. We don't know what it is how will the public respond to something of that sort? And it's not like the government hasn't already sort of done that. They have kind of, they've, they've admitted that UFOs are real, but I guess the real question is how much do they really know? And if they were to disclose everything that they really know, how will the public at large respond to that? Will they panic? Will they freak out? Will, will they just be like, yeah, whatever, you know, cause we've already lived through a whole bunch of crazy things that I feel like a lot of people would just be kind of like, all right, well, I guess the aliens are here now. Like, 
Yeah, that is really, I think, um, one of the biggest uh, mysteries uh, yet. So uh, now uh, UFO, I believe they are called unidentified aerial phenomena, so yeah. they changed the name. UAP. Um, I still UAP. don't like UAP, though. I don't even like to say it, UAP. It's, yeah, I think we all grew up with the yeah. term UFO, it's, and also it's easier, it's more fun to say in a way, but yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, um, I, I, I don't know, to be honest, I think the government freaks, panics more than the people would. Uh, I, I think I, I, at least from the reaction I got so far about my project, I haven't seen one single comment that was about panicking or uh, everyone seems to be extremely curious and mm -hmm. everyone saying, no, oh, this is exactly what I was waiting for. Uh, I think we are all tired to think that we are uh, alone in this universe. We can't wait for um, other uh, civilization to show up or uh, just give some um, uh, different perspective on uh, our life in the cosmos, I think. Yeah. Uh, but of course, I mean, there are also military interests and yes. um, uh, a whole uh, world that we don't even know about. I believe all this uh, also funding are not even reported publicly. Um, so true. it's a huge black hole that uh, we kind of came to accept uh, because of this status quo. But of course, um, yeah, nowadays um, all these uh, unidentified area phenomena are uh, heavily um, reported by uh, cameras, mobile phones, and et cetera. So I, I think I'm usually I don't think so much about it. I never uh, witnessed anything that looked weird in the sky. So I, I keep my mind quite uh, neutral about it. I have no mm -hmm. particular opinion on that. Um, you kind of have to be with a subject like that just because mm -hmm. there's so much mystery surrounding it. Brett and I are eternally fascinated by that subject. We have like an entire section of our library about that, you know, the UFO phenomenon. And I think you are right when you say that it seems more like the government would panic more than people. And I think that is kind of the case because, look, when you're dealing with these objects, they invade all of our most sensitive airspace. Um, we, we've deployed our best pilots to try to intercept them and they fail. So when you think about people who are in positions of power and they look at something like that and it undermines their power and they can't do anything about it, these things should just do whatever they want and they can't stop them, it would make sense that the people in power would actually freak out more about that than the people like us who aren't in positions of power. And also I wanted to comment on, you know, the change in the term to UAP and why it does make sense, even though I prefer UFO because, you know, <laughs> we like that term, we're used to it. Um, unidentified flying object, an object implies something physical, whereas an unidentified aerial phenomenon, it's a little, it, keeps that mystery there because we don't really totally know how physical these things are and the way they behave too in the sky defies a lot of what we even know about physics you know 90 degree turns and stuff like that like blipping out in the sky and then appearing in another place in the sky and that sort of thing and we know this happens because again pilots have been deployed to intercept these things pilots have seen these things and testified to seeing these things and if anyone knows what normally should be up there 
it's people who spend thousands of hours up there flying around. So when they see something that they themselves cannot explain, those to me, I think, are the, the most important testimonies or the testimonies from, from the pilots because they should know what's normally up there. And then when something appears that they're not able to explain, they're like, you listen to that person, you know? But I think it makes sense to change the term from object to phenomenon because we don't know how totally nuts and bolts this thing is. It, it could be semi-physical, it could be not physical at all, and it's an energy or something like that. We don't totally know. Yeah, also it could be a lot of reflection from uh, uh, light uh, reflection from somewhere, or uh, could be laser, could be, um, I don't know, some other form of um, uh, distortion of, of, of light phenomena that we have not yet um, understood. The thing is that also the uh, technology on Earth is changing, so, okay. uh, and that creates a new phenomena on the atmosphere as well, so um, we still probably don't know exactly how the two go along with each other. But indeed, I remember watching some videos about that, and there was uh, there were a few cases when um, pilots had a near-miss near uh, collision uh, with one of these uh, unidentified uh, aero phenomenon. And um, so indeed, it's also something physical there and uh, highly technological. And I think it is very concerning for I can see why it is very concerning because it is a type of technology that even uh, the country with the most advanced uh, mm -hmm. chips, like the United States, uh, they don't know what it is. I mean, yeah. it is pretty strange. What uh, they, someone uh, on Earth, probably even on a country, a terrestrial country, has uh, discovered uh, some scientific breakthrough or some technology that. That's possible. Uh, it is. Rich, Richard Dolan, who I mentioned earlier, he has a whole theory of like what he calls the breakaway civilization. And in this theory, um, some tech has been recovered by people in power and has been heavily under lock and key and kept secret from the public and developing alongside our public technological world is a more advanced form of development that's happening in secret and underground bases kept under lock and key and that there's almost like two civilizations developing at the same time one that's uh, the sort of deep hidden world with more advanced tech that the people in power are keeping from the rest of us and then the tech that we are using right now it's available to us i don't know if i believe that um possible all of that kind of hinges on whether or not things like roswell happened right like did something crash or did something was something recovered by the government and kept from us and do they know way more about this than they're telling us or is it the other way and i, I, I kind of lean the other way that perhaps they really don't know that much more than we do about this and part of the cover-up is to not undermine their power to mean mystique meaning to you create a mystique around it because they don't want to let the public know that they actually don't have a handle on this phenomenon they mm. don't it's actually kind of scarier is, in a way which is kind of scarier <laughs> it's like they even the people in power with the best technology and the biggest budgets they have no idea what the hell these things are either and they actually know less or maybe as much as we do and that's probably you know would would freak people out even more because it's like wow even our own leaders don't know how to handle this sort of thing. It could be either one, you know, I'm not totally sure myself, but it is interesting to think about. 
Yeah, well, I think uh, it's not far-fetched to imagine that there are two parallel, at least I would say two parallel worlds. I'm sure there are more than just two, but mm -hmm. um, for sure what we have now available is way behind to what is currently being developed. And this is just uh, how technology evolves. So if you think about, I remember uh, working, uh, when I first started working with radio, I was uh, using a technology called uh, Moon Bounce. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, Moon Bounce is a technology where you uh, can uh, reflect uh, radio waves on the surface of the moon. So you transmit radio waves towards the moon using a, a powerful antenna and you receive the reflection oh. and uh, you can uh, hear uh, the, the, if you, if you, for example, if you uh, speak to uh, if you transmit your own voice to the moon, you can hear the echo somewhere else on Earth. So um, uh, it's like a, a diverted phone line, if you like. And uh, this was actually developed by the US Navy in 1946, so right after the Second World War, to spy on uh, the Soviet uh, countries. Uh, this way they were able to listen to uh, critical, uh, crucial uh, conversations and uh, television broadcasts and stuff like that, and they could get a picture of what was happening in those countries. And uh, only 15 years later, this technology became uh, known to the public. So by the time they launched it officially in 1960s, it was already old. The uh, military yeah. was moving on to actual physical satellites. And uh, when it became a public domain, it was uh, basically a, an outdated technology. And I think this is just happening all the time. And so the internet and so any uh, development in uh, aviation or uh, other um, cybernetic or whatever, I'm sure it's in the, in the other worlds, it's much more evolved than what we have available now. Um, yeah, so that's not surprising. It's the same with the computer, you know. Exactly. They were using the computer before that even became a public thing that, you know, now we have them in our pockets. <laughs> so, but um, yes. another thing too about all of this is, and it's, I guess it's kind of sad to think about, but it is just the way of the world, how much of our technological developments come from war and times of war, you know, True. trying to fight our enemies to create yes. weapons, to create means of gaining intelligence on our enemies. And that's where a, a lot, if not most of our biggest technological advances have come from, come from times of conflict. Hmm. Well, you can say that even the wars has always something positive. Uh, in this case, yeah. war Sorry. brings something positive. If you think about how many people died in the war, in wars, Second World War, but also how many people might have been saved by the technology that was developed during uh, World yeah. War II, in a way... Um, thinking of Alan Turing now. Exactly. He created the precursor to the computer in order to to decipher messages from the Germans, and then all that eventually led to the development of the actual actual computer. So again, something exactly. that happened during a time of war. And uh, many people live better thanks to technology. They, their life, uh, we, we we probably thanks to technology, many many people are saved. So somehow uh, there is this uh, positive. Um, results of yeah. these horrible uh, events. The universe finds a way to balance things out. <laughs> it seems like, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, you mentioned uh, parallel uh, parallel worlds. It reminded me, Richard Dolan, he also, not only did he write AD, but before that, he wrote these two other books um, called UFOs and the National Security State. The first one sort of chronicled 1941 to 1970, 1973, and then I think it was 1973 to 1989. To the 90s, I think 90, so early 90s, 91. 92, like um, and basically, it's, it's very dry history, and what he does is he goes through every uh, major sighting, and every documents, landing, documents every yeah, every response by you know major governments around the world, and he puts it all into chronological order. And it's it's a very interesting historical. Not so much major governments, just to clarify, specifically the United States government is Thank what you. he's looking at. I thought he covered some stuff in like South America. Um, I think he mentioned some of that, but in Europe, the national security state he's talking about is the United oh, it's States. Oh, the United government. States, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we spend, we outspend everyone when it comes to military technology. I was just looking at our budget. You know, we spend uh, $778 billion That's a year crazy. on military technology. And the next closest, I think, is China. They spend like a third. It's like $225 billion. And then Russia doesn't even break $100 billion. They're spending like $80, $90 billion a year. So we spend a lot of money on our military. Um, but it does result in technology, you know, that, that saves lives. You know, one of the major things uh, that we got out of the space race, for example, was water filtration technology, because they were trying to figure out ways that they could recycle urine, because, you know, obviously, if you bring water, water's very heavy, you know, and we need it to survive. Um, and that was one of the, the ways that they were able to, they, they were able to create these filters for, for water that have very tiny, tiny little pores, so that they could remove harmful particulates and just get the raw H2O out of it. Um, plastics, you know, uh, rocket technology, all this stuff came out of the space race. So it's very fascinating. Dolan called the, the parallel worlds breakaway civilizations, mm -hmm. and he postulated that there may be um, one or more in existence from, you know, ancient societies. So it, this is the idea that uh, the world has sort of gone through a catastrophe or an apocalypse before, um, and there were global-style civilizations like ours in existence in the far ancient past, and we don't have any record of them because some sort of global catastrophe wiped it out. And uh, it's possible that sort, certain aspects of those uh, that civilization survived in underground bases or under, you know, ocean bases. Or I've even heard people talking about uh, potential cities on the dark side of the moon because the moon's locked in a uh, forget what kind of orbit it's called. But the moon doesn't uh, rotate basically, so mm -hmm. we all, we always see the same side of the moon, the light side of the moon, and we don't really know what's on the dark side of the moon because we don't have a direct line of sight. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I keep a mind open about all these, um, for example, um, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena and other um, ideas that might seem a bit far-fetched now. But um, yeah, we shouldn't underestimate uh, the fact that there is a lot of secrecy around, in general, um, our um, society. Um, so, for example, as I, I like thinking about 10 years ago, I remember when um, uh, there were, I remember reading about uh, mobile phones uh, recording conversations or mm -hmm. uh, televisions recording uh, people at home. It sounded like science fiction, right? I mean, we, we, 
reading these um, uh, blogs and these uh, ideas was like, no, that's not possible. I mean, they wouldn't get to that that far, right? They wouldn't do this. I mean, who in their right mind would do that? <laughs> It was really hard to believe. And now it's even in the, when you buy television, I say, okay, it's just in the instructions manual and they tell you clearly when you are watching your TV, you're being spied and, you know, we do it for security reasons, for uh, uh, tracking terrorists. Also, that kind advertising of thing. too is a big reason. Advertising, of yeah. course, sure. So, but it has become part of our life and we don't really even uh, have yeah. any, I mean, not much concern. I mean, if you think about it uh, in a, a lucid way, uh, it's actually horrible that we got to this stage that uh, uh, while you sleep, while, you know, while you leave, someone might tune in and just get some information about you, especially if you wear one of these uh, wristwatches. I, I find them very scary because they know exactly what you're doing from just uh, looking yeah. at your <laughs> physiology. is terrible. Uh, but some people just don't mind. They just go running. They don't they do, think about they, it. They mind their own life and wear this and knowing very well that they can be tracked 24-7. Uh, so it's very weird. And we do this even with animals. Uh, there are these uh, tracking devices for mm -hmm. whales and penguins and so on. Uh, so indeed, but um, I don't know, in, in, when it comes to actual contact with an extraterrestrial civilization, so I'm a bit skeptical because I think we, uh, I mean, it's really, really, um, it, the distances are really crazy. So um, it, I will find it really, I mean, that is something I, I, I'm not so easy to push no. uh, the boundaries because uh, it would require some, and why would they come here with rockets? And why would they come here in flesh? I mean, in oh, my opinion, if they ever question. manage, if they ever manage to come here, uh, they wouldn't come here in, uh, in flesh or they would find much smarter way. For example, uh, the tree body problem, I thought it was a great book because it kind of, uh, as it, it goes beyond this idea of uh, contact in the same way as maybe more old fashioned science fiction might uh, envision this uh, actual physical contact with uh, actual rockets and these uh, uh, saucers. And uh, I mean, that I find really hard to believe because I think it's uh, just, um, unless they found some laws of physics or they found ways to travel through quantum means or whatever, but even that, I'm not sure if they would be able to teleport a spaceship and themselves with actual uh, organic material. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, those questions are interesting, but they're also showing, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that you're limiting yourself to this, but a lot of people tend to think of this phenomenon just from the extraterrestrial perspective, mm -hmm. uh, forgetting that that is actually only one theory of what the UAPs are extraterrestrial meaning not from earth something that came from far away and then came here it could not be that it could be something that's uh interdimensional or hyperdimensional something that is almost native to this space but operating on a different plane of of existence or consciousness that we can't even really perceive with our senses and it's not that they had to travel from a far distance at all it, it might not be that at all um my conclusions on this are 
aren't really solid either. You know, I'm also skeptical, but I guess based on my research and how much I've read about the subject and testimony and all that stuff, the only thing that I really can conclude is that um, UAPs are real. Um, most of them can be explained away eventually, but there are a small percentage of them that are truly extraordinary that cannot be explained away and that some form of intelligence directs the phenomenon. What the nature of that intelligence is, is a whole nother question. Mm -hmm. Why the intelligence engages with humanity in the way that it does, for whatever reason, that is also another question that I, I don't think we'll probably ever know the answer to. But what I can say is that the phenomenon is definitely real um, and that governments around the world are interested in it because they want to understand what it is and they want to understand why when they try to engage with it, it, it reacts in an intelligent way and evades them. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, as you said earlier, I think uh, the governments don't have a clue. This is, I think, genuine. I don't think they have a clue. Otherwise, um, yeah, I, I think uh, just as much as normal people. In this case, we are really equal, that they are afraid because it is something they don't understand yet. Um, so we'll find out. I mean, personally, I think if they had... Uh, uh, we, even if, you know, even if they were from an extraterrestrial civilization, um, are they observing us or why, why would they observe us? Why would they have interest in a planet like Earth if they are able to uh, live just with remote technology and uh, uh, thrive just on... Um, like non-material non resources, well, maybe, then... Maybe the phenomenon is a sort of remote technology and it is something that has been sent here, but there's not like a physical being in them to observe us. And why would they want to observe us? I, I mean, we're fascinating. We are fascinating. <laughs> and why do, why do we observe other beings lower than us on, on the evolutionary right. scale? Yeah. And, and, and yeah all types of purposes that we use these beings for. We, we eat them, we harvest things from them, we experiment on them, we observe them to try to understand ourselves better. We look at how they work to try to understand more how we work and to compare and contrast. So, I mean, really, I, I can think of a, ho a whole host of reasons of why perhaps another intelligence would be interested in observing us and our level of intelligence, but it's still a question that's just very much up in the air and we might not ever really know or understand why, which is why, you know, I, I said before that oh, the only thing I can really conclude about the phenomenon is that one, it's real, two, an intelligence directs it because it reacts intelligently. And, and this is the thing too, that really bothers a lot of scientists about this subject. And I understand why. Scientists want to conduct an experiment because that's how science works. We want to you know, have an experiment, you have a control group, and you want to try to get the same results every time to be able to prove a phenomenon and to understand it. If you're dealing with something that is directed by an intelligence, and that intelligence is more advanced than ours or higher than ours, how can you subject that to an experiment to then produce the same results every single time? You can't because that intelligence would be able to feed you whatever results it wanted to feed you and those results could be different every single time you tried to 
conduct an experiment to then control the UFOs. You know what I mean? You can't really do that. And that bothers a lot of scientists because they want to have that control over a phenomenon to be able to test and to have the repeated results to prove what it is. And this is just not that simple, unfortunately. And it, I can I can understand why it makes a bunch of them frustrating. kind of frustrated because it's like, oh, I just want proof. You know, they're like, I just want proof and I want to be able to repeat the experiment and prove it. And it's like, no, sorry, bro. You're dealing with something that is, I think, directed by an intelligence and you're not going to get those repeated results every time you try to engage in it. Well, I think, uh, I, I, I believe the intelligence is very human and uh, this directing this, this uh, whatever it is. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, to be honest, I think I, if there was an intelligence that is not terrestrial out there observing us, how long have they been there? I mean, um, we we know about this uh, UAP. Um, for we, I mean, I know there has been a lot of these sightings, but also um, there is no real history, no actual scientific uh, history of all these phenomena yet. So uh, technology um, has evolved. In the form of UFOs and calling it that and observing it in that capacity and context. The 1940s is around when right. that yes. started. But there are cases going back further than that, you know, of airships and stuff in the 1800s and reports and, and you know, written testimonies about those sorts of things. And you could even argue that there, there are testimonies going back further into more ancient times, into medieval yeah, times. William Bramley yeah. wrote a book called Gods of Eden, where Gods he sort of, of Eden, went yeah. over all the ancient evidence for the, like the ancient yeah. aliens theory. So, you know, they could have always been here. And another question, too, is like maybe their uh, perception of time or like they're operating just from a different plane of existence that what seems like a really long time to us, like thousands and thousands of years of our history could be a relatively short time for these beings as well. Obviously, this is all hypothetical, but sure. it could explain why they seem to have been here for just like ever, but to them, it probably isn't even forever. It could be a very short period of time because our perceptions of time are, are different, perhaps. Well, look, if they're up there, I would just say, beam me up. Uh, <laughs> I really wouldn't wait uh, much longer to just, just, I would be very, very curious. It's one of those very few things I would risk my life for. I'm not into extreme sports or anything like that, but this would be probably an event where I would risk it. A little bit like the movie Arrival, right? I mean, yeah. when uh, the, side, the linguist uh, gets in touch with this civilization, I think the main drive for her is to actually uh, discover this incredibly yes. um, exceptional um, being and uh, it's one of those things that you would risk your life for, I believe. And I'm not the only one, I'm pretty sure. Well, remember, and... curiosity killed the cat, too. So, <laughs> yeah. it would definitely be a risk because you but... don't know. Like, again, like, what if like they eat us or something? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, for people who like science fiction, like we do, I mean, uh, and we have this uh, curiosity about the cosmos, this is probably a risk that uh, we will take um, uh, easily, maybe. I don't know. I'm just saying that when, if I ever saw an alien outside my door, I don't know what I would do. Seriously, I, that hand. would be quite a fun. <laughs> I would run. I'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, 
think I would get a little toward Daniela and just the curiosity would get to me that I might mm. find an engage in some way and be like, hey, you know. My favorite yeah. movie of all time is the, uh, the 1984 classic Aliens with Sigourney Weaver. So, mm -hmm. run. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, I think it's incredible because there are so many people who actually um, really I imagine these alien contacts and they uh, maybe they even hallucinate they they report having been abducted mm -hmm. uh there is this uh, i think this uh, part of the human imagination that goes really wild when it comes to imagining this scenario i think there, there is really an intoxication for for the the idea of meeting someone from outer space and I think this is just, I find this fascinating. Um, so why, why is that? Why are we so drawn to something coming from outside of our planet? Uh, I, yeah. I have no idea. Uh, I wonder if other species might have the same uh, uh, imagination about it, or I don't know, maybe uh, whales, or who knows if they ever think about extraterrestrial whales or, parrots who are also highly intelligent uh, do they ever imagine what is life in yeah. uh, outside of our environment i don't know it's quite amazing that the brain has evolved in that way to imagine these scenarios that are completely far-fetched um so i'm not surprised that i think here what you describe um there is a, a kind of concussion between human imagination uh, that wants to attribute to some kind of meaning to something that is still very fuzzy. It's a little bit like the message that uh, people are decoding as we speak on uh, Discord, which is this platform where the decoding process is happening. And uh, it's been really interesting to see how people interpret the shapes of this message. So the, yeah. the shapes that are quite abstract and uh, people are trying to give it some meaning and uh, there are some really creative interpretation uh, and that, of that is how the human mind works you're correct yeah. like we look for patterns we look for symbols we make symbols we're looking for meaning we want to imbue meaning onto the experiences and the things that that we encounter and yeah i mean why wouldn't that apply to the alien phenomenon or to uaps and, and and that sort of thing um another topic i wanted to bring up is that and i kind of raised it earlier when i mentioned how the subject sort of frustrates scientists because they want to be able to conduct an experiment <clears throat> and to control and to get the same results to prove something and when you're dealing with a phenomenon like this you know other life out there uaps and that sort of thing i think it makes scientists uncomfortable because they can't control it and there's also there's a stigma around this subject. There's there's this general idea that people who are interested in this are crazy or mentally unstable. And there's something to that, you know, having having engaged in conspiracy forums and things like that, and having been someone, you know, I've been interested in this subject since I was in high school, probably even earlier. And it, it does attract a lot of uh, mentally unstable people, very paranoid people. There's truth to that. But because of that, there's this kind of stigma around it where I think a lot of scientists are afraid to openly admit that they are interested in this subject because they don't want to be uh, lumped in with those people who are perceived as, you know, like, wacky and <laughs> i think we kind of we i think we should change that 
a bit. I think we should we should be working toward lifting that stigma and that there is nothing wrong with asking questions about this. You know, there's nothing wrong being interested in UFOs or UAPs and wanting to understand what that is as a scientist and to be able to openly discuss the subject. Um, are you familiar with J. Allen Hynek? No, I'm not. Yeah. Uh... He, he, was, uh, he was an astronomer and the government hired him, the Air Force hired him as part of the three government projects in the 1940s to the 1960s that were created to officially investigate the phenomenon of UFOs. And that was Project Sign, which was from 1947 to 49, Project Grudge, which was from 49 to 51, and then Project Blue Book, which everyone probably knows more about, which was from 52 to 69. And they hired Hynek actually to explain away the phenomenon debunk was, it. to debunk it that was his that was his job was here's an astronomer and he went into it as a skeptic like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna disprove all of these cases that come to me and explain them away and it's he's an interesting character because he went into it as the skeptic like oh none of this is real i can explain it all away with science he came out of that period as the father of ufology the guy who said, actually, even though we can't explain away most of these cases, he realized there are a small percentage of them that are just so truly extraordinary and beyond explanation that they represent a new phenomenon that scientists must look at and can't ignore. And then he created an entire system of categorization to then observe these cases and to catalog them so we can look at them. And that's where you get the close encounters scale like you've probably seen close encounters of the third kind right right yes Classic. Mm -hmm. that title comes from the scale that Heineck created that Heineck created which are close mm. encounters of the first second and third oh, kind cool. i had yeah. no idea right so the close encounter of the first kind is just a visual sighting like seeing a ufo in the like sky. seeing a ufo and it has to be about 500 feet away mm-hmm and you can kind of make out some detail about what it is. Anything that's farther away than that, he didn't even bother categorizing because it was just too obscure. Too obscure. Right. If it was close enough, it makes it onto the scale, you categorize it. First kind. Second kind was um, so a UFO has a physical effect, is alleged. So this can be an interference in the functioning of a vehicle or an electronic device, animals reacting strangely. Um, a physiological effect such as paralysis or heat, discomfort in the witness, um, some physical trace like impressions in the ground, scorches, or like affected vegetation, chemical traces. So any case where there was a UFO and then aside from the sighting, there was a physical effect left on the environment in some way, that would be a close encounter of the second kind. And then a third kind was um, they, they see occupants. So UFO encounters are um, in which an animated entity is present. These include humanoids, robots, um, humans who seem, you know, humanoid looking people associated with the phenomenon itself. And the whole idea of the scale is that there's a closeness to it. So mm. the way you are, you know, it's um, encounter of the first kind and then the closer you get, you get to the third kind. And then later on, two other categories were added which is uh, the fourth kind, close encounter is the fourth kind, and that's the abduction phenomenon, what we know is that. So people who not only claim like, hey, I saw this 
this object and I was close to it, but that like it took me or that they have missing time mm. associated with that. And then the fifth kind is um, direct communication. People who claim to have not only had a sighting, but that they uh, directly communicated with the beings associated with it. Well, you get me really uh, <laughs> excited in the possibility yeah. of communicating. That is what uh, really gets me yeah. so excited about. But I have no idea that this uh, movie was based, the title was based on this. So, wow. Read about Heineck. He is really interesting. Uh, okay. Read, read his book called uh, The UFO Experience, which okay. is where, where he lays out his categorization system. But I think he's admirable because, again, he came into the subject as a skeptic. He was trying to disprove it <clears throat> and then came out realizing, like, well, no, there's a real phenomenon here that's truly extraordinary and that scientists should take it seriously. And we should be trying to at least categorize these cases to understand a little better of what this is and why it's happening. And I think that's the approach that that more scientists should be taking. We need to lift that stigma that you're crazy. Dolan, Dolan was the same. Yeah, he went Dolan, into it. He yeah. was doing uh, research into the history of the Cold War. But he went into it as a historian. Right. He was approaching yeah. it from a historical. And his, his idea, too, is that historians should be able to look at the subject, too, without having that stigma put upon them that you're crazy yeah. for wanting to. Well, that, he was seeing all yeah. these dates and places and yeah. people and, and reputable sources who were yes. reporting these, these sightings. And he couldn't ignore it. And it kind of got his attention. Yep. And so he went from being a Cold War historian yeah. to being a UFOologist. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how people get into it. I think, uh, well, at least the scientists I know, um, they uh, have a, they keep an open mind about things. Yep. It's just that they don't talk about it because, of course, um, um, I think uh, it's more like, you know, you might ruin your reputation if, as a scientist, you think you talk about something that has zero scientific evidence uh, yet so i mean yeah there might be some sightings as you said but those are not even explained so there is nothing really there to write a paper about or to discuss with the scientific community properly apart from you know some uh, incidents etc um so that might be one of the reasons but there is a scientist who is very well known who has been uh, talking about this uh, object um it has that very uh, i can't pronounce the name but i'm sure you know which one i mean is this uh uh, cigar-shaped object that mm -hmm. has, has been passing by, uh, has been spotted by astronomers, and uh, the shape is very unique, and uh, it's unclear whether uh, any cosmological yeah, event could create that kind of shape. So there was, there is a theory by. Um, um, I, now I cannot think of his name, but he's, he's a very, very well-established uh, scientist, I believe, who is based at the Harvard University. Okay. And he has been very, uh, very, um, has been uh, openly talking about the possibility that this uh, object um, that astronomers have uh, classified as, um, I believe, an asteroid or uh, a similar object. Uh, it, it is actually an alien spaceship. And uh, uh, so th there are actually uh, theories by scientists also out there who are really um, also um, imagining that you yeah. know, we, we should, uh, we, they're really advocating for a more, uh, for a different approach also amongst yeah. the scientists. I, I think that's what we need because like, yeah, right. yes. some of them are afraid of their reputations being ruined. And I think we need to get rid of that stigma. 
And I think it's a shame that they're afraid their reputations will be ruined if they openly just talk about it or ask questions and, and just express an interest in the subject. You don't have to write scientific papers on it, but you should be able to at least discuss the possibility of these things, discuss the, the cases, the testimonies, those sorts of things openly without having that fear that like your reputation is going to be smeared and you're going to be looked at as some tin foil hat crazy it's like no you're a scientist you're allowed to look at these things and ask questions and there shouldn't there shouldn't be a stigma around that so that's definitely one of my goals with talking about this subject and although i'm not a scientist you know any scientists who are watching this like i want them to know like you can talk about it you can ask questions you shouldn't have that fear that you're gonna like lose your job or have your reputation smeared for doing it but i i get it because like i said there are a lot of mentally unstable people interested in these things and conspiracies and all that stuff and i i understand why that you know association is there and people are afraid of the opprobrium that'll come on to them for talking about something that other types of people are interested in who obviously aren't scientists so well there are many examples of people of scientists who do scientific research a bit on the fringe so for, there is a, a noble um laureate uh what's his name um penrose um roger penrose uh he is a physicist and uh, he has been uh developing a theory of consciousness that is really uh, not uh, um, conventional at all. So, uh, and uh, he is a very well-respected scientist and uh, somehow he developed uh, this theory called uh, orchestrated, um, um, yeah, I, I, again, it's a name that unfortunately I don't remember. Um, and um, so th there is a way for scientists uh, objective reduction. Exactly. So uh, I think, you know, if, if, if sci I, I'm, scientists, it's not that they, I think they're not afraid of talking about these things. It's that it's a very fuzzy subject. Uh -huh. And um, I think these scientists uh, who created some kind of theory uh, that they are able to debate also in the public, uh, they are not afraid of, uh, of speaking of things that uh, um might be they, they might have something actually very interesting to 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 tell us and uh this theory of consciousness for example is really yes. really interesting uh because it suggests that um uh, our brain has been uh, as developed uh in uh in a, in a certain way uh, as a result of uh, the, the, the gravity that we, we share and the, the, the environment of the Earth, but also we uh, we have a, a, some parts in the brain that can uh, tune in with some quantum world, mm -hmm. some quantum reality. And you will think, oh, this is a science fiction book, and uh, it's not something written and imagined by a Nobel, uh, science, Nobel Prize scientist. And um, I find that this theory is really interesting because although it is very, very hard, I don't think there is any evidence uh, in, that has been proven in the lab. Uh, conceptually, it's really interesting, and uh, whether it is it will prove to be true or not, uh, I think it offers some very very important insights. So I think we should all keep an open mind about, in general, things that are also coming from people who are who, why not? I mean, unstable, so to speak. Uh, the vision, if, if you want, want to call them. Uh, 
visionaries. Uh, there are so many artists who were visionaries, like Van Gogh or Philip K. Dick, for example. We were mentioning him earlier. Oh, I um, love and in his uh, madness, he had some incredible intuitions oh, and yeah. some visions that are really yes. beyond the... Yeah. Uh, Bayless is a really interesting book where he exactly. kind of based the whole story on that with some of his weird experiences that he had. And, you know, some might call it psychosis or say that, you know, he was schizophrenic or whatever. But whatever happened to him, it definitely gave him a fascinating insight on the universe and consciousness. And I've read a few of his novels. I'm a fan of, of Philip K. Dick. I got to read more of him. So he wrote so many books. It's incredible because I, if you are like, I'm also uh, really passionate about Philip K. Dick. And uh, if you look at his um, trajectory as a writer, it's, it's quite incredible. Yeah. So I remember reading some of his earliest books and uh, they were uh, really accounts of uh, the American society in yes. the 1950s. And they were extremely uh, accurate and very, uh, for very uh, very much ahead of, her, of their time in how he was making this social commentary about people living in the suburbs of uh, this small town in the U.S. And, and then uh, he changed and started from these. Um, he, he kept looking at people living on the on the ver on, on the verge of society, but with that incredibly visionary idea that um, somehow our even our individual existence is connected with uh, some other life somewhere yeah. out there and uh, other life is even having an impact on, on our uh, even uh, trivial movements I, I remember not uh, valleys but there was another book um, I can remember now the title where um, the main character, one of the main character uh, was really directly influenced by some um, um, intelligence out there that was using some satellite technology. In a way, I mean, it, it might sound very far-fetched, but on the other hand, it is true that um, if you think about it, this is also quite human. If you think that we, uh, from the ground, uh, we we manipulate, we, I mean, we, we operate satellites even on Mars or beyond, and then these satellites uh, in reverse, they affect human life because they, by looking at space, they also uh, allow us to to get data and they, they're also looking at us. They're looking at how we move on this planet. They're looking at how traffic moves, how other animals move. So there is actually now, it is fair to say that the technology in outer space is affecting us. And there is this two-way communication between Earth and space that is, uh, so in a way, even in a very pragmatic sense, what Philip K. Dick was writing in the 70s has very much happened, uh, also in terms of security and how the, uh, the, the privacy is breached by those uh, advanced technologies that this, uh, this, uh, this technology is able to really spy on uh, people's life, as we were saying earlier. So uh, I think there is for sure uh, something um, in these uh, extreme visions. There is something which tells a lot about how we live, how um, 
um, how, I think how how just uh, we we evolve with technology. It, technology is also a, an endless source of, uh, of of inspiration and fear. If you think about AI now, oh, yeah. AI is another incredibly uh, scary yet extremely inspiring technology. If you think about the amount of books that have been written about AI, yeah, they well, either. Well, on that note, too, it's interesting to to realize just how much science fiction has almost been like prophetic when you look at science fiction. It predicted things that are happening decades ago, some of it even 100 years ago. And absolutely predicting the, the direction we were heading in. And AI is one of those things like science, science fiction writers were writing about that for a very long time. And now here we are. We are now in the era where that is actually being developed. It is actually happening playing out before our eyes. And, you know, Philip was one of those people who was thinking about these things. Um, I was trying to look for the book that you were talking about that was similar to Valis. Um, it might so be one of titles. Yeah, he has so many. So I've only read like, the last one I read was A Scanner Darkly, um, which is another interesting book, you know, when thinking about psychedelics and those substances and what they do to alter our states of consciousness and what that means. Um, I read Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. I read Valis, I read Ubik. I read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is an awesome book. And anyone who's ever seen Blade Runner, that's the book that was based on. But I need to read more. He's got a ton of freaking novels. So oh, brilliant. the conversation makes me want to pick another one up soon. And, and you know what? I wonder if, uh, uh, for example, David Lynch, I wonder if he has been also greatly inspired by Philip K. Dick. Probably. Uh, because some of his films, when everything somehow at the end derails and from this uh, life in a small urban town suddenly becomes this nightmare, this this story where there is no end. Yeah. There is so much uh, of also Philip K. Dick uh, style in those movies. So, um, and um, yeah, I, I find also that kind of, uh, the, the, we, we, there is a word in art, I don't know if you ever heard of the word uh, derive. Derive is actually a French word that, mm -hmm. Uh, means in art uh, means when you just let your uh, imagination go completely uh, out of uh, joint, completely to, to quote a book by Philip Kedik, but yeah. um, uh, that kind of uh, imaginary derive, uh, it's uh, something which, um, yeah, I find uh, really intriguing about Philip Kedik and also David Lynch, because it is so outside of our daily life, you know, it's something we are not allowed to experience. But there is such a need also for humans to be completely out of joint. You know, we, we, need, we need that moment. Um, we, we need that also to push our mind uh, so much further than our limits. So uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great reading Philip Kiddick. It's a bit like one of those experiences, I, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's a good place for us to kind of wrap it up. We've been going what, about an hour and twenty. Yeah, I was just. Oh, I wanted to come back to um, a sign from space. Mm -hmm. uh, so it looks like you guys started doing the decryption on the twenty fifth of May. So it's still very fresh. People can get involved if they're interested. Let me pull this up here. Uh, yeah, pull up the website. It's right here. Um, so you guys have these little dispatches coming out once a day. 
Mm -hmm. uh, can you just give us like what's happening right now? What's the timeline like? Uh, how long do you anticipate? Uh, it sounds like it's supposed to be infinite. The project's supposed to just go on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and of, uh, I don't remember what it was, but it, I heard about this a while ago and it was this art project of this continuous piece of music. Um, mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about there, where it just it, it's still playing now, I believe it's supposed to be like the longest <laughs> performance ever. One thousand years, I remember, yeah. oh, something like that. Yes, in the UK, if I if I remember correctly, it's. Um, so um, it reminds me of that. Is this just like an ongoing thing? Yes. I think it will be because, as I said, uh, if we ever receive the signal from space and the signal, uh, if the signal contains a message, well, we might never be able to give this uh, message a, a real meaning as humankind. Uh, we might always speculate about what what are these what is this civilization trying to say or I think it will be a, a, a quest that we would endure probably for a very long time who knows we are still debating over human artifacts uh, some artifacts have not been fully understood even from 2000 years ago and uh, I think something like that would be uh, even more radically incomprehensible for the human mind. Yeah, it's really fascinating. The other thing I was thinking about while you guys were uh, discussing the uh, differences with people who have mental disorder and like, you know, uh, different kind of things is like people who go on these DMT trips mm -hmm. and they sort of like go out into space and they have interactions with these, like they call them machine elves. I don't, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know, I've never done it, um, but it reminded me of that. And there just seems to be like so much uh, space to explore that's not our standard three-dimensional physical understanding of, of actual, you know, like space that we have access to. You know, our, um, our perceptual range as humans is quite limited. You know, we can only see a very small bit of the color spectrum. We can only hear a very small bit of the audio spectrum. And there's just so much else out there. There could be whole dimensions of things happening beyond our perceptual range that we're just not aware of because we haven't, you know, we can't perceive it. Absolutely. But can I say something about our artists and scientists um, and in general, anyone with a great imagination? I feel like um, the more I work with scientists, the more I realize that we are uh, both scientists and artists. We are both gifted with an incredibly strong imagination because when I think about the discovery in science, you couldn't really come up with those uh, concepts uh, in the first place if you didn't have this uh, uh, in incredibly inquiring mindsets. Um, um, so, um, I, yeah, if, if we think about the recent, dis I mean, uh, the discovery of uh, like this uh, uh, visualization of a black hole, I mean, that's insane if you think about yeah. it. It's so DNA. DNA. Of, uh, of DNA, exactly, and they everything a, else. Was it, was it Watson or Crick? They had a dream about the structure of DNA, and then later were able to verify that that's... It makes me think of uh, Watson and Crick and having that sort of... That, that divine spark of inspiration mm -hmm. of imagining something and then being able to go forward and then to verify that, to, to prove it based on that intuition, which is very much like a, a creative 
spark. Absolutely. That's, I find that incredible. It's a little bit like what we do as an artist. Uh, mm -hmm. We start from an intuition and we try to make this intuition tangible, a reality. visible, or it is very much the same process. So yeah. I'm a painter, uh, so I, I definitely- You are, okay, great. Yep, I'm a painter and a poet. I write poetry as well, and I play music, I play drums. So I'm very much in that creative uh, mindset. And although I'm interested in things like science and like, don't ask me to calculate anything, that is not my field, <laughs> you know, but put a brush in my hand, different thing. You know, I, I know what I'm doing. So, but I, I do think, like you said, there's definitely a similarity in the, uh, the mindset that is required to explore the universe and to discover more that is also required in, in creating something that is absolutely artistic and intriguing. Yeah. And, uh, these are very, uh, big questions. Uh, kind of addressing things that are not simply, I mean, uh, yes, yeah, science is also looking at very, uh, very tangible, pragmatic things, but also asking these uh, questions that are primarily um, just a, a curio strong curiosity about the, uh, the about nature. So, uh, sometimes when I read these comments, uh, we shouldn't spend money for these or for that. We shouldn't spend money for art. We shouldn't spend money for, I don't know, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I, of course, strongly disagree because yeah. if, if we as humans were stripped of this uh, ability to research, to look further, you really essentially amputate the uh, human human. Uh, human mind that just it's really a huge uh, uh, i think um um assault to human nature in my yeah. opinion but it's the same for for the arts too like you want to fund the creation of beautiful things and you want to have a society where you're surrounded by beautiful things and i think it's why the you know it's why somewhere like europe is so invaluable and i haven't been to europe yet and i really want to travel there and to see it but just that history of art that goes so far back. And when you go to a place like that, like you can't put a price on the beauty you're surrounded with. It's like something like that is priceless. And there are other places that don't have that, you know, and, and perhaps those societies should invest more in that and, and having more, more beautiful things in your, in your culture, in your society, in your city. You want to be surrounded by that stuff because it, it's awe-inspiring. If anything, that sort of stuff makes scientists want to discover more. It gives you that inspiration, you know, and it's designed to do that. Like a, like a Gothic cathedral, for example, mm -hmm. like it is designed to have the effect it has on you when you walk into it. And even people who are atheists and don't believe in God at all will walk into a place like that and they will feel that, that sense of awe and inspiration, like, wow, human hands built this in devotion to something bigger than them and whether they believe in that something bigger or not they will have that feeling they will understand that feeling because the building itself is artistically designed proportionally designed to have that effect on you absolutely yeah, yeah so i i think um yeah it's important to change a bit the dominant narrative uh, that unfortunately we witness nowadays yeah. about having to justify every dollar uh, for research or for things that are not immediately um, 
not considered immediately useful. I think that's a very narrow mind, narrow minded approach. Um, uh, because thanks to these things, also we we grow and we we improve uh, our life, and uh, it's just uh, even yeah, it's it's just a great returns in in term in terms of um, uh, just richness, cultural richness, and um, um, yeah, it's it's really important, <laughs> I think, message to to convey. It is important. And I, I think it, it applies to your project too. Like some people might look at this and be like, ah, oh, well, what's the point of like a hypothetical mm. message coming from aliens and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, well, the, the point is to, to intrigue and to get you to think, to get you to think outside the box and to ask questions. And that is what good art does. Good art doesn't just inspire you or give you a sense of awe, like, wow, that is beautiful. Good art should also provoke questions within you provoke that inquiring mind. And I think that comes back to what we were saying earlier of how there is a relationship between science and art, just from that alone, inspiring that sense of curiosity and to provoke questions about the human experience, about the universe, what is our place in all of this? Absolutely. But you know, I just have this curiosity as you are in New York City. Uh, what do you think is extraterrestrial about New York City? <laughs> because for me, New York City is also, I find it quite extraterrestrial. So it's... it's one of the weirdest places on Earth. That is very, very true. It's going through a weird period right now, too. You know, there's a lot of economic turmoil. There's the migrant situation, which is changing things in the city as well. And just post-COVID and the lockdowns, things have shifted here. But I think there's a there's um, a historical value here that keeps people coming back. And that even, even when New York is in a decline period, it will always bounce back. It'll always come back because people want to be a part of the story that is New York City. Anyone who is anyone in the world who's doing anything significant or important, whether it's in the sciences or the arts, will come here at some point in their lives and has passed through this place. So that is invaluable. That's kind of what makes it sort of extraterrestrial in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, just the melding of cultures and the museums, the, the, the cafes, the, the music venues. There, there's a lot here that is valuable despite, say, the drawbacks of living in a big city because there are a lot of those too, you know. Crime, noise all of that crazy people like you will encounter some of the weirdest people you can think of here that you it will feel like like am i on another freaking planet <laughs> like, <laughs> so if extraterrestrial landed they might be already in new york city they fit right in those next <laughs> door right in. <laughs> oh boy i guess we'll, we'll wrap it up there thank you so yeah. much Danielle. really for spending time really appreciate it now you're busy thank you really um, fun to talk to you great everybody needs to check out a sign in space uh you can download the message you can hang out in the discord you can get involved it's a lot of fun um and you uh will we'll have to pay attention and see where it goes who knows we may get a real sign from space sometime soon let's hope so all um, right. You're on Twitter, right? Oh, are you on Twitter? Yes, we are on Twitter with the project Assigning Space. And oh, also, I'm on Twitter with my name, uh, I believe, Daniela de Paris. Um, so you Go can find me. I will put links for everything in the description. Cool. Thank awesome. you. Everyone, thank you so much. Like, comment, share, subscribe, give us money, all the things. <laughs> we'll see you again next time. Take see care. You.